Let's pray. Our God and our Father, you have created all things and have sent forth your Son as the fullness of your revelation. You have indwelt us by your Spirit that you might teach us to walk in your ways to be obedient to your statutes. And aside from the illumination of your Spirit, we can understand none of your truth. So sanctify us in the truth which is your word. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word, we pray in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. If you will turn in your copy of God's Word, our sermon text is 1 Samuel chapter 7. We'll begin reading at verse 3. 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. When World War II broke against the shores of North Africa, a young British citizen living in East Africa at the time by the name of Roald Dahl answered the call to arms. And after finishing his training as a fighter pilot for the Royal Air Force, he took off in his out-of-date decrepit uh, Gloucester Gladiator biplane to go link up with his combat squadron to fight the Luftwaffe over North Africa. Toward the end of his flight, he began to think that the directions he'd been given were not quite accurate because he found himself circling over desert with rocks and no apparent airstrip. Eventually, he ran out of fuel and crashed among the rocks. He maintained consciousness long enough to crawl from the wreckage and so he was spared, but he eventually woke up and he was in a hospital in Alexandria, having rec- uh, been rescued by his own soldiers who had seen him crashing in the no-man's land, or the directions had sent him that were faulty. The problem that he had 
was that he woke up and he still could not see. He had sustained serious skull injuries in the crash. His skull had been fractured, but the doctors were not sure that he'd ever be able to see again because the swelling was so great over his eyes that they weren't sure what the state of them was. He became accustomed to living in darkness and understanding that he would perhaps never see again. And he never forgot the day when a golden ray of light reflecting off the insignia on the nurse's collar who was tending to him broke through the darkness and he began to see once again. This is very similar to where Israel is at the start of this story that we just read. They had abused the Ark of the Lord, bringing it out into combat against the Philistines like some sort of good luck charm. And the Lord had not appreciated that. Israel had lost the Ark of the Covenant. They had lost the visible, physical sign of God's presence among them. And after 20 years of living this way, God was beginning to open their eyes to the reality of their problem. They had turned aside and followed after false gods. They were now at the threat of Philistine attack and they began to realize the predicament that they were in. And this brings us to the first point of the sermon, the promise made in verses three through six. And here we have Samuel, this judge of Israel, who's a prophet, who's a priest and a judge of Israel, appearing after a long absence from the book of 1 Samuel, where we had last seen him as a young boy training under Eli. And Samuel is responding to the Israelites because the Israelites bring up a pretty serious concern. They knew from the law of Moses that any individual Israelite who pursued idolatry was liable to death. The punishment in Deuteronomy is that they would be taken outside of the camp and stoned and so purge the evil from their midst. But what of the case of national idolatry? What did they do when all of Israel turned aside and followed after false gods? Well, Deuteronomy had an answer for that as well, and it wasn't the answer that the Israelites wanted to hear. This was the covenant curses that would be leveled against Israel. And they knew that Deuteronomy 28 promised that if they were idolatrous as a nation, they would go into battle one way against their enemies and be driven out seven ways from before their enemies. In short, they would be utterly defeated, scattered, and destroyed. And with this in their minds, they come to this prophet and this priest who's been upstanding, who's been a hallmark of of virtue and, and godliness. And they say, what do we do? How do we fix this problem? And Samuel gives them three commands. And he couples that with a promise. And he says, if you're going to return to the Lord, put away the idols. That's the first command. Direct your hearts to the Lord, second command, and serve him only, third command. And these commands are coupled to the idea that If they do these things, God will deliver them from the Philistines. But these commands are somewhat unique because the first and the third command act as kind of the bread of the command sandwich, being these visible things that anyone could see if they were actually following. Putting away the idols was was not this internal thing that they would do. It was a visible thing. They were carrying idols around with them. It's preposterous if you have the entire Old Testament history to think that you could turn to an idol, but they had. So they were to put the idols out from amongst them, get them out of their land, and they were to serve the Lord only. This is the physical, visible service that God had expected and commanded of them in the law of Moses. This would have been the ritual sacrifices, the the right observance of the law. This is everything that people could see, everything outward. 
But the meat of the sandwich, the central command here, is to direct their hearts to the Lord. This is inward. And this, this idea of directing the heart carries with it this sense of grounding. Rather than merely pointing one's heart toward the Lord, Israel is to ground, to anchor their heart upon the Lord. This is the sense of when you're facing an enemy cavalry charge as an ancient Israelite, and you have your spear and that's it between you and the enemy. You anchor it against a rock and lean into it and hope that it holds. That's the sense of directing your heart to the Lord, that he is your firm foundation. And this brings in the idea of God's mercy, that he will deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. See, when, when God revealed himself to Moses, he revealed himself not just as a God of anger and wrath, right? In Exodus 34, he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to mercy and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the mercy that Samuel brings to the people of Israel. This is the hope that is laid out before them. So how do they respond? Well, they seem to respond in faith. By all outward appearances, they respond in faith. They put away the idols that were among them, obeying the first command, and they serve the Lord only, obeying the third command. Samuel tells them to gather at Mizpah, this city just east of where the Philistines live. If you go from the sea into the land of the Philistines, up into the mountains, and then come down out of the mountains, you'd find yourself in Mizpah. It's not far from the major threat. He tells them to gather there at this place where Israel characteristically gathered, this place where Saul would later be anointed as king of Israel. And they're obedient. They go to Mizpah. They pour out their drink offering, their their water, and they, they fast, afflicting themselves, trying to show the truth of their repentance and the truth of their faith. They don't whitewash their sin. They don't try to hide it or quibble. Rather, they say that we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judges them fairly at Mizpah. And we might think then, if you were an Israelite at the time, now is the time for deliverance from the Philistines. We've done everything that was required, but that Samuel said. We turned away, we put away the idols, we directed our hearts to the Lord, and we have served him only. So now we should be delivered from the hand of the Philistines. And this brings us to the second point, the promise kept. See, this, this next section from verse 7 and on starts to talk from multiple different camera angles. And the scene shifts immediately to the Philistine camp. Israel has done the right thing, so we go and see what do the Philistines do. And you can almost hear the glee in the voice of the Philistine commander when he realizes that the messenger has just brought him news that all of Israel, who has been systematically disarmed throughout the time of Philistine dominion under the judges, has finally gathered at a place that's easy to strike. This unfortified city that wouldn't be fortified until the reign of King Asa much later, this city that's at the foothills below the attack of where the Philistines had come from, and it's even due east, so they could attack at a time of day that would put the sun right in the eyes of the Israelites and at the back of the Philistines. Everything would be in their favor militarily. And so they attack. Now, it takes a while to mobilize an army, so Israel hears of the impending catastrophe that's coming to them. And you might think this is the realization of everything that they had feared. They came to Samuel because they feared the Philistines, and they lamented after the Lord. And now the Philistines are coming to destroy them. You might think there were several options that they could have said coming to Samuel at this point. Why did you bring us to Mizpah? Where can we flee? Where should we go? But what is their response? Their response is that 
They need their mediator to cry out to the Lord for them. They show that their hearts are indeed directed toward the Lord. And see, they, they couple their faith with action, ensuring that Samuel is able to actually offer the sacrifices that God would expect. And, and we see in this brief glimpse of the time of Judges, which is so full of examples of things going wrong, things going right. This is how Israel was supposed to have behaved throughout all of the time of the Judges. It's coming back from the chiropractor with everything put back in place now. We might expect that this is what they were hoping for. You see, this is the faith that Job had when his counselors turned to him and say, the reason for your affliction is yourself, and so you should just be upset about it. And he says, no, I will trust the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This is the faith that the Old Testament teaches us in Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king of the time, drags them before him and says, you will worship my idol. And who is a God that can stop you and save you from me? And they say, our God can. And even if he does not, we will not worship your God. This is the faith that scripture commends. And now we have a shift, the last major shift of the story when Samuel offers this burnt offering and he's crying out to the Lord. Up until now, everything has been done to the Lord, about the Lord, against the Lord even. But now the Lord acts. He takes on the position as the subject of the verbs and he thunders against the Philistines. And the mighty voice of the Lord speaks and it's no, there's no ambiguity. And he decisively defeats the Philistines from before the face of Israel. There's even a degree of irony here that wouldn't have been lost on the initial hearers of this because they had been worshiping Baal, the storm god of the ancient Near East, the one who was supposed to be able to thunder. But the living God, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, thunders that day and shows himself to be faithful to his promises. And so complete is the fear of the Philistines in the presence of this attack that they turn and run uphill back to Beth Car, about two miles away, fleeing before the Israelites who go out and pursue them all the way back. And now we see, far from the covenant curses being realized by Israel, the covenant blessings of Deuteronomy 28 come into view, that their enemy would go into battle one way against them, and their enemy would be driven out seven ways from before them. And we see that God is faithful to his promises. And now might be the time that if you were an Israelite, you would expect this is the end. This is the story. God has done what he said he would do in response to our repentance and in response to our faith. But this brings us to our third point, that there is an expansion upon the promise. See, God is not limited by what he promises. He can deliver more abundantly than he than is expected. And we see this in verse 12 when when Samuel, trying to make sure that Israel does not forget what has happened, sets up a stone. And your Bible probably footnotes Ebenezer and says that it means stone of help. And it's this stone of help that he sets up between Mizpah and Shen, which is a, a highly trafficked route at the time. And he sets it up so that every time an Israelite family travels that route, when a young child says, Dad, why is there a rock here set up on the side of the road? What's it called? You'd have to say it's the stone of help. 
Why is it here? Well, God delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. How did he do it? We don't know. He thundered against him. He drove them out of the land. He was faithful to his promises. You see, God recognizes that we are a forgetful people. And the Israelites are a forgetful people. And as powerful and as mighty as his acts were on that day, that generation would pass away and his actions would be lost to the fog of time. So he gives them a visible sign to remember what he's done. And even beyond that, there was nothing in the bargain about Philistines never coming back during the time of Samuel. But God delivers that. They stay out of the land and, his, and God's hand is against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And Israel is restored to the land. These cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel beyond what was promised, beyond what was in the bargain. God shows himself faithful beyond measure. And then Samuel in verse 15 and following goes on to judge Israel all the days of his life. Israel who had been subject to shifting tides of leadership. Some who are good, some who are bad, always under the thumb of the Philistines, it seemed. They have finally fair government. And they have the correct worship of God instituted under Samuel as a contrast to the perversion of God's will that was being done under Eli's sons and for which they had died. And we see that Samuel, as this model prophet, as this model priest, as this model judge of Israel, is functioning to put things back as God has ordered them. And so we find ourselves asking, what is the point of this? A 3,000-year-old battle, thousands of miles and an ocean away, what does this matter to us today? We find ourselves often in the same situation that the Israelites are in. Sin can tend to blind us. It closes our eyes and we become comfortable and complacent, living in a way that God does not command. Or perhaps we sin and we wonder, how can we handle this now? Do we have a Samuel to whom we can go and ask? What would the answer be? Would it be the same? Would it be to put away the idols, to direct our heart to the Lord and to serve him only? When Christ began his ministry in Matthew 4, his first words to the people in his, in his ministry of proclamation were to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, repentance and faith doesn't change throughout scripture. Repentance and faith doesn't change throughout the lives of God's people. Repentance and faith is the very lifeblood of Christian. It's the air that we breathe. It's our oxygen upon which we depend. It's not a thing that happens once at some point in the past and then goes away. Now, Samuel pointed forward to Christ. You see, 1 Timothy 2.5 makes it very clear that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And because we have a sure mediator, the righteous one interceding for us, appealing to his Father in heaven on our behalf, we know that our repentance is heard and that our faith is genuine. Our faith is shown to be fair and true in the light of the resurrection. We know that God will honor his promises to us. And so we ask, how often do we need to repent? How often is God willing to forgive? I've committed the same sin again. What do I do? 
will God forgive me once more? The disciples asked that of Christ. And Israel here, this was not their first time turning to idols. The disciples said to Christ, do we have to forgive someone seven times? Which if you've forgiven someone for the same thing seven times, you know that feels like a lot. And Christ says, no, not seven. Seventy-seven times. You keep forgiving. And if Christ commands us to be that forgiving, how much more is he willing to forgive us when we turn to him in repentance and faith? You see, we can only love one another and live rightly because we have been loved, as 1 John teaches us. But there is one other aspect of the story. There is one other aspect that is relevant to our daily lives as Christians, and that is Israel repented. They had true faith, and the Lord still allowed the trial to come to them. It was after they gathered at Mizpah, after they poured out their drink and their, and their fasting, that the Lord sent the Philistines. Was it because God needed to know if they would be faithful? Was God reading the newspaper to find out what happened at Mizpah that day? No. It was the Israelites who needed to know that their faith was genuine, and God provided them with a trial which they probably were not excited about at the time, but showed them the truth of God's grace and the faith that he had given to them. We as Christians are being built up as living stones. First Peter teaches us that this is our role as living stones. And perhaps you've played in a playground as a child or seen kids playing and you can pick up a rock and you can break it. And you're so excited because you're so strong. It's not because you're so strong. It's because that's a weak rock. Is that the type of stone that we're called to? No, of course not. You wouldn't build with that kind of stone. And God is not content to leave us in weakness, but he intends to strengthen us. And he does this through trials. And he shows himself faithful even through trials. When First Peter says that we should not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes our way as if something strange were happening to us to test us, but we should rejoice, why should we rejoice in sharing in Christ's sufferings? Because God is strengthening us and he's preparing us for the things that lie ahead because he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. He loves us enough that we are not left in weakness. And he loves us enough that we are not left without the promise of salvation in Christ. So we can repent because we know that our God will hear us. We can turn in faith because we know that our God fulfills his promises. We have the greatest assurance in Christ that can be had. And it is true that calm seas never made a good sailor. And as Spurgeon once said, he'd learned to kiss the wave that cast him upon the rock of ages. So when the trials come our way, how do we respond? Do we respond in repentance and faith? And I would say that as believers, you have every reason to, because the trials are not out of God's control. And while we don't understand the reason behind them all the time, he does them and strengthens us through them, showing himself faithful. So where is our heart grounded? Is it on the rock of ages? Is it on Christ? Or is it on sand? Return to the Lord and he will answer you. Let's pray.
Our Father, your word is sharp as a two-edged sword dividing between joint and marrow. Let our hearts be shown to be hearts of flesh, cut deeply by your word that they may be made alive in Christ. Your comfort surpasses all understanding, so we ask that you would direct our hearts to you. Give us endurance through our trials that our lives might bear witness to your faithfulness. Equip us by your spirit to live more and more to Christ and to die to self. Do this for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.